We're in a little series, and it's a series that's called The Church. And we are the church. And what we wanted to do uh, right at the beginning of the year is just take a step back and say, what is this thing called the church? What, what is it that we have in our prayer and our desire and our dream for the series is that by the end of it, um, if you don't know already, which you will because you're smart, intelligent people, that you'll know that the church is not the building. And you'll know that the church is not this you know, anointed time of 6 o'clock to 7.30, or depending on who's leading worship, 8 o'clock or 8.30. <laughs> and, um, and you'll know that the church is actually us, is the people. And one of the things that we can do, because the Bible does this beautifully, is it gives us a bunch of metaphors for the church. And I love the metaphors that are designed, a metaphor is designed to inform and then to move the hearer. It, it gives you a picture of something, and then as you think about that picture, it, it illustrates what it is that we're actually talking about. So when God said, I want you to understand what the church is, he gave us a number of metaphors, and last week uh, Sarah taught about the church being the bride, and that incredible picture of how the, the church is literally like this bride that is crazily loved by the bridegroom. And that one day will just be presented in all of her radiance and her beauty and her glory. And that's you and me. We are the bride. It's a metaphor. It's a picture. And as you think about that, you think, wow, am I that loved? Think, well, am I, am I living in such a way as the bride? And this week we're talking about the church as the family. And we're going to get into what that means in a minute, but there's a risk with a metaphor. And here's the risk, that when you hear that word, it evokes in you your own experience and your own reality. And for some of you, when you hear the word, we are the church, we're the family, your immediate thought is, you have no idea how bad my family is. That's going to be a bad metaphor. And some of you, last week when it came to the bride, you're going, yeah, well, check me out. That's not me. I don't think that'll ever be me. I don't like that whole concept anyway. It's old and antiquated, and you just go through there. But what you need to do is actually say, allow the Lord and allow the truth of his word to redeem that picture. And my prayer tonight is that God would redeem the thought of family. And it will not replace your physical family, but it will actually give you a picture that will blow your mind of what real family is. And the church is designed to be real family. And so we're going to dive into this and uh, we'll wander our way through it. I'm going to start by telling you how I'm going to end. Right? So like, yeah, if, you, if you're one of those people that doesn't like the stuff in the middle, I'll give you the end right now and you can go to sleep. All right, sound good? Okay, here we go. Some of you have gone, thank you, this is wonderful. Here's the conclusion, right? And this is it. And it's up on the screen, right? So you really will get it, right? To be part of the family of God means we are adopted as sons. And I've got in brackets, sons and daughters. I'll explain that in a minute. Of the Father. This means that we have an inheritance that is out of this world and everything we need to live in this world. And as a family, we love and we serve one another and we grow together for God's glory and for the spread of the gospel. That is what we're going to end up saying by the end of the next 30 minutes. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the family. 
We thank you for the church. We are the church. And Lord, as we dig into what it means to be the family of God, Holy Spirit, would you speak to each one of us? On my heart tonight, particularly as those for whom family is a toxic word, family is a dangerous word, Lord, would you lift their eyes beyond that to see you as the Heavenly Father? And Lord, would you minister to people tonight? Father, would you teach each one of us truth? We ask this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, if you've got a Bible, uh, turn to it or a device, and it'll be on the screen as well. Ephesians 1 verse 3 to 6 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So to build this picture of the church, I'm going to look at four theological concepts and then we'll come to a, a place of what does that mean for us, which is our nice little summary statement we've just had. So the first one is this, that God chose you. You might go, oh, cool, cool. But let's think about this for a minute. God chose you before the creation of the world. Let's think about that for a minute. Before God said, let there be light and let there be anything, God saw you and said, I pick you. Now, when it comes to being chosen, what goes into my mind, and I don't know if you still experience this at school, but when I was at school a few years ago, I had these horrible experiences, particularly when I was around sort of eight or nine, and it used to be that the teacher would say, right, we're going out for PE. Right, do you still do PE at school? Right, okay, cool. Um, right, so you go up here, and what they do is they say, right, today we're going to play softball. And, and then they'd say, right, now we're, I'm going to pick two team captains, and you, know, you can be captain of team A and you can be captain of team B. And then the rest of us, the whole class, would line up on this line next to the fence, and the teacher would say to the two captains, right, you get to pick your team. And, you, and you'll start first and you'll start with second. Now, for a guy like me that's kind of like middling to average at sport, I knew I was never going to get picked first, right? Because the team captain always picked the best person. And they say, oh, well, that person's first and that person's going to be second. And you always knew that after those two, it'll be that one, then that one, then that one. And then you're sitting there and the line is getting shorter and shorter as all the people are ending up on the teams. And in the end, you're just simply going, oh, God, please make me not be the most useless person in the class who gets picked last. Because somebody always is. And that person stands there with everybody else being picked, and they're all high-fiving each other, and then you watch, and there's some poor person in the class who's just there like this. And they know that, yes, ultimately the, the captain will say, I pick you, but they know that they're the last person, they know that they're useless. And sometimes I wonder if that's how we feel with God. That you say, yeah, I've come to believe in God, but yeah, if I, if I really think about it, he probably picked a gazillion people before me. And I'm just sort of like an afterthought. I want to tell you this, before God breathed the world and the universe into being, he saw you for exactly who you are, and he said, I pick you. Before you had a chance to do anything, he picked you. Before you had a chance to be anything, 
he picked you. And in spite of all the reasons why you might, why you, why you might think you're not acceptable and all the reasons why you think my, my God might be irrelevant, God chose you and he did this in absolute love with no ulterior motive. He chose you before the creation of this world to be adopted. You're chosen and you're adopted. Now, you're adopted to sonship and you go, okay, that's interesting. Why not daughtership or why not personship? Why sonship? Well, to understand this, we have to understand what the original listeners would have understood when they heard the word adopted. Because when you and I hear adopted, we think, baby, for some reason, no parents, needs a new family, a new family adopts the baby. Right? That, that's how we imagine adoption. For the people listening to this in Ephesus, when they heard that phrase that he, you are chosen for adoption to sonship, here is what they had in mind, and it was the Roman adoption system. And it went like this. You see, in the ancient Roman world, adoption was a significant and a common practice. And today, if, um, well, in fact, we've just done it. Sarah and I have just written our wills, and we can leave our wealth to whoever we want. So it's quite fun, really. Um, and uh, and so, so we choose who we want to leave our wealth and our debt to. And... Um, <laughs> In the Roman world, with a few exceptions, the man, it was the man, had to pass his wealth on to his sons. That's the way that society was constructed back then. Now, if a man had no sons, or he felt that his sons would be incapable of managing his wealth on his demise, or he simply thought his sons were a bit of a dropkick and they were unworthy, he would adopt somebody else to be a worthy son. And adoption, interestingly enough, usually wasn't of a child. In fact, it could have been anybody. And there were cases where the, per where the person who was adopted was older than the person doing the adopting. So it had nothing to do with age. But what would happen is once that adoption process had taken place, here was the benefits that the person who was adopted received. Number one, whatever debt they had was cancelled by the father paid in full. Secondly, the person who was adopted received a new name. They kept their original name, but they had a new name that encompassed their original name. And that was the name of the father. And so that person was then legally um, identified as someone who was the son of this father. They would be the legal son of the father. Because they were adopted and all their debts were cancelled and they were now identified as the son of this father, they were entitled to all of the rights and benefits of being a son of that person. So they could go wherever that father went. They could do whatever that father did. They could be whatever that father wanted. And then when the father finally died, they would receive the inheritance of the father. That's what they had in mind when they heard adopted. And Galatians 4, verse 4 to 7, puts it like this. When the, time, when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, and the Spirit calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but, a child, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Here's the point. 
When you come to Christ and you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Saviour, you are responding to his choice of you before the world began. And in that moment, you are adopted to sonship. That means that the sin, your debt sin, is totally cancelled. Nothing left, and you are completely redeemed, and you are given a new identity, which is a child of God. And in that new identity as a child of God, you are given this holy, heavenly inheritance. And in addition, in that moment, not only do you receive a heavenly inheritance, you receive free access to all of the heavenly resources that you will need to live a life worthy of this identity that you have now received in full. And you are then you, are, you have become an heir of God, a child of God. And you have this promise, this hope for eternity. And more than that, you receive the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting that one theologian put it this way, and it's on the screen. He said, the Father sent the Son so that we might have the status of sonship. The Father sent the Spirit so that we might have the experience of sonship. And there's an interesting little verse back in Galatians 4, verse 4 to 7. Floyd, you want to flick it back up again? And that second sentence is interesting because if you read it, you could literally read it like this. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, so you are no longer a slave but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. That makes total sense. But Paul slips in this little statement in there the Spirit who calls out Abba, Father. And I've often wondered why it's in there, and, I, and you may have heard of somebody you know, getting all excited and say Abba is the same word as Daddy, so we can go running around calling God Daddy. And yeah, that, that's true. But there's something incredibly profound in this verse, in this moment. And it's like in the middle of this incredible place where we're getting, wrapping our head around the theology of adoption, and we're understanding all that God has given us, Paul slips in this little phrase and says, you know what? And the Holy Spirit is given to you, who lives inside you, is calling out Abba, Father. Now, Johnny is leading his worship tonight, and he plays the guitar. And it's a very nice guitar, Johnny. It's a, it's a nice guitar. Right? It sounds good. And it sounds good because you keep it in tune. Right? And because it's in tune, what happens is when he strums those strings, they all, they, the waves that the strings make, the sound waves that the strings make, they start to resonate together and that then gets into the sound box which is in the back. And, and because everything is perfectly in tune, what you hear coming out is a beautiful chord and a beautiful sound. Now, if Johnny's guitar was out of tune, if he'd kind of fiddled with the pegs at the end and one of the strings was out of tune, when he strummed it, you wouldn't get that same resonance because the sound waves that they make would be a little bit like if in the sea, if you see a wave crashing into all sorts of things, it would be very messy. And that looks messy, and believe me, when a guitar's out of tune, it sounds messy. Right? And we would all go, Johnny, stop playing. Please don't play anymore. It's out of tune you would need to put it back into tune. When things are in tune, there's resonance. And the Holy Spirit in our life, he cries out 
Abba, Father. It's a, it's a cry of intimacy. It's a cry of worship. It's a cry of devotion. It's a cry of identity. And he cries out from within us. And as he does, as we are surrendered to the Lord, our souls resonate with his voice. And it's, it's like getting a spiritual hug. And it's in that moment as the Holy Spirit is crying, Abba, Father, and we resonate and worship in the word and prayer and in family, and we, our life resonates with him. I, I discover this when I sit with my Bible and my notebook in the morning on a green chair in my lounge, and, and I open it, and as I read it, and it's like the words just come alive and it's like God speaks and in that moment I know that my soul is resonating with the Spirit who is crying, Abba, Father. I, I resonate when I, I worship and sometimes when I'm standing here or in the car or, or out on a walk and I'm worshipping and I'm singing and you know those moments when it's like you feel as though the world all of a sudden is a better place and because my soul is resonating with the Spirit who's crying, Abba, Father. When Sarah and I will go for a walk, and sometimes as we're doing that and we're talking, we just end up praying together, and, and sometimes as we're walking along the road or along the beachfront, and we, we just start praying and thanking the Lord, and in those moments it's like your soul begins to resonate with Abba, Father. And I... I find that when I do that, my soul resonates and it begins to worship and I almost want to just whisper alongside Abba, Father. And I, I've come to learn, I know the resonance of the Holy Spirit in my life and I, I know that when my soul is resonating, my eyes leak and I find I'm just saying it is well. It is well with my soul. And yet I also know that sometimes I'm out of tune. And if there is sin in my life or if there is cynicism in my life or if there is worry or there is unforgiveness or there is resentment, that in those moments the Spirit's still crying, Abba, Father, but I'm out of tune. And there's no resonance. And there's a hardness or there's a harshness. And I know what that feels like too. And in those moments, how do I tune myself? And can I suggest to you, one, that's going back to what you always do, but also that's why the family is so precious. Because how many times has it been the prayer of a friend or someone with a word of knowledge or a prophetic word or someone else worshipping alongside you and you just sort of catch the sense of, man, I've just got to get back to loving Jesus all over again. And the family does what the family does. And, you know, some of us tonight could do with a bit of a spiritual tune-up, couldn't we? Abba, Father. And as children of God who are chosen and who are adopted and who are redeemed, we also are heirs with an inheritance. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 5, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
and into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. You see, you and I, as chosen, adopted, redeemed heirs, have an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade that is kept in heaven for us. And the Holy Spirit has been given as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance for what's to come. That's in Ephesians chapter 1. And the question that we logically have to ask is this, what is that inheritance? I mean, who doesn't want to know? You know, when, when God says, there is an inheritance for you, I want to know what it is. And I thought, well, the best place to find out is to go right to the end, because everything you find out what happens at the end. So in Revelation chapter 21, it says, says this, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I love the way all the metaphors of the church come together right at the end. It's like it comes to fulfillment. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Here's what we know. We know that the inheritance is good. And we know that the inheritance is something to do with dwelling with God dwelling with his people. We know our inheritance is where all things are new, the broken, the marred, the, the destroyed, all are new. We know for our inheritance that death and pain and tears are gone forever. And so we then need to say, well, if our inheritance is good and it is all of those things, what is it likely to be? And my question would be this, what has been created to be the deepest desire of the human heart? And can I suggest to you it's to be home. To be home. Where there is unity, where there is oneness, where there is completeness, where there is relationship where there is family. You know, I, I am incredibly blessed to be in a family where we can get around the dinner table and it is amazing. And we can share life together and we can, we can waste a night at a dinner table. We can, we can waste a night just sitting around on the couch and just worshipping and laughing, and, and we can do that. It is absolutely incredible. It's when I feel most alive, and I think somewhere deep in the heart of every single one of us is that sort of desire. We just want to be home, where we're known and where we're loved. And I think what we're going to find, that when we get to heaven the inheritance that we are kept for and which is kept for us is more about relationships than it is about crowns. And you see, the Holy Spirit is a deposit where we experience family now. And as we experience this family called church, it's like a, a glimpse of what it's going to be like when we get there. And as we experience this with each other, imagine what that will be like unleashed in eternity when we fully resonate with the presence of God 
and the connection and the relationship with one another. So, what does this mean for us now? That's all the theology. What does this mean for us as the family of God? Chosen, adopted, redeemed, co-heirs of all that God has promised us. Well, in John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us. Do you get it? That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. You know, one of the things that is our prayer for this series too is that you actually get a hold of truth. And notice how the Bible emphasizes this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Oh, yeah, but I'm not really. No, no, that is what you are. Have you surrendered your life to Christ? That is what you are. You are a child of God. You are this adopted, chosen child of God. Oh, but I don't feel like it. I don't care what you feel like. The Bible says this is what you are. You see, if you work on if I feel like it or not, then I'll be it. Well, no, that just doesn't work. This is what you are. And this is what we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. It's interesting that Titles favoured by the early Christians were things like believers, saints, the church, disciples, the way, Christians, brothers and sisters. In fact, brothers and sisters was the most common term you heard in the early church. If you went to church back in the first, second, third century, chances are high that people would introduce you. They wouldn't say, hey, look, you know, come to my church. They'd say, come and meet my brothers and sisters. And what's interesting was back in that day that the, the secular philosophers of the time were really big on the language of friendship. They were talking about everybody was friends. And they said, yeah, we have friends in our society. And, you know, it's about how many friends you have. It was almost like Facebook, you know, back in the first century. And Paul never used that word to describe the church, the word Friends. He used the word phileo, and some of us say, well, that's one of those you know, words for love, and it's the phileo, it's the friendship word. Well, it actually means the brotherly, sisterly love word. And Christians should have the closeness and love for one another that characterizes siblings in their better moments. And Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. And you say, well, how do I lay down my life for my brother and sister? And how does that work right across the church? And surely, you know, I only know a few people. Do you realize that God has been inspiring followers of Jesus to lay down their lives for people for centuries? And you are the fruit of that? Do you realize that the fact that you can hold this book in your hands in English is because somebody literally laid down their lives to secure that. The first people who translated it did so at the cost of their lives. The people who brought the Bible into the, the English language did so at the cost of their lives. We as a family about 10, 11 years ago, had the chance to go to England and we stood outside a cathedral in Gloucester and outside a cathedral in Gloucester there is a statue of a bishop. His name was Bishop Hooper. 
And Bishop Hooper was literally burnt at the stake. They stuck gunpowder under his arms and in his pockets and it was too wet and it took them about five goes to get it to go off while he slowly burnt at the stake. He's one of our ancestors. And I look at this, you know, I'm famous. I've got an ancestor in Fox's Book of Martyrs, if you know what that is. It's just like this crazy, awful book where people who get killed for the sake of the gospel. And why was he killed? Because he smuggled the gospel into England. He laid down his life for us. And there is someone who's laid down their life for you, maybe not physically laid down, but somebody has shared the gospel with you or with your mum or your dad or your brother or your sister or you or your uncle or your auntie or your grandmother or your great-grandfather or your great-great-great-uncle. And the lineage of that has come all the way down to this place where you're sitting here. And there is this incredible network of people laying down their lives and brotherly, sisterly love all the way through time. You know, I, when it comes to the end, I, I'm greedy. I want to have three eternities. Right? I need one eternity to work out the wonder of who God is. Right, because I don't understand him. Uh, he's beyond understanding. I want an eternity to try and wrap my head around his incredible magnificence of who he is and his character and the quality of everything he is. I need an eternity for that. I want a second eternity to worship him for what I've learned in the first eternity. Because I just think every time I learn something, I just want to worship him. So if it takes me an eternity for that, I need another eternity for this. I want a third eternity to try and map out all of the people who laid down their lives and the impact of that and the network of what that means and how I got here because of the faithfulness of others. And I reckon that that's going to blow Ancestry.com out of the water. <laughs> As Jesus laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. I wonder who God's calling you to lay down your life for. And you know what? This side of eternity, you might not even know. John 17, verse 21. Jesus' prayer. And he prayed these words. He said, May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Now, Jesus is praying to the Father, may they, that is the church. He's praying at this moment for the church. Do you realize Jesus was praying for you? And Jesus who spoke the world into being, Jesus who is the creator of all things, I have a sneaking feeling that when he said may they, I reckon, speculation, I reckon he saw every single one of us in that moment. Have you thought about that? that he who is the creator of all, in that moment when he was saying, Father, may they, he's got you on his mind. May they also be in us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So may they, the church, the family, be in us, the Trinity. That is the most spectacular statement. May the family of God, the church, be in the Trinity. Might there be this relational unity that we have together. Why? So that the world might believe that, Father, you have sent 
the Son. See, this is the pinnacle of Jesus' prayer in John 17, and it was that the believers in the family with God the Father and Jesus, sealed by the Spirit, that this expression of the family was and is to be the greatest example, the most profound description, the best outreach strategy, and the most compelling invitation to people in the world where the church is a family. It's not just a place of belonging and community, but it is a place where there is the unrestrained, resonant joy of relationship that we have one with another. So with all that in mind, how are you doing laying down your life for your family? And think about it right now as I close with even just your life group or the people you do ministry with or just your, your friends. And the way to this, the way to think about this in terms of how we're doing it here and now is that we, we look at the New Testament and in the New Testament there are 59 one another statements. And these 59 statements are descriptions of what laying down your life looks like and I'm going to just go through them. I've categorized them into five categories. And they go like this. So here's the question. How are you doing laying down your life by accepting, watching over and praying for each other? If we're to be this incredible expression of family, how are we going praying for each other and watching over each other? Secondly, how are we going bearing with forgiving and loving each other? How many times have you decided not to forgive somebody? Oh, but they hurt me so badly, I cannot forgive them. You know what? Laying down your life says, I forgive and I love. Thirdly, Laying down our life is about encouraging and inspiring and teaching and correcting. And when things are, when you see something in somebody's life, you go, man, that's just not going good. That's, they're in danger. You correct and love and you encourage. And fourthly, how are you going? Submitting and serving and helping and honoring each other. How are you going laying down your life? And the fifth one, and you're all sitting there going, okay, how are you going to teach yourself out of that one? Laying down your life is greeting each other with a holy kiss. And I say, why the heck did you destroy a really great simple list by putting greet each other with a holy kiss at the bottom? I want to tell you, the Bible instructs us four times to greet each other with a holy kiss. Now, if the Bible says it once, well, we do it, because you know, what the Bible says we do, true, Thank you. Whew. <laughs> if the Bible says it twice, it's like serious. If the Bible says it four times, man, we better pay attention. Right? So, you know, when was the last time you greeted somebody with a holy kiss? Don't answer that. But in New Testament times, the, the holy kiss was a sign of greeting. Right? It was, um, in that culture, it was very much, you know, this is what you do, you would kiss. And as they did that, as Christians, it further expressed this phileo love and unity. And the holy kiss was incredibly precious to new believers during these early church years because often when they came to faith, their family would kick them out. And they'd be an outcast. They potentially lost everything. And when they walked nervously into a home where there was brothers and sisters meeting 
a brother or a sister would come up and would greet them with a holy kiss. And in that moment, their heart would go, I'm home. And the Holy Spirit would be going, Abba, Father. And the resonance that was going on in their soul is they realized they now have discovered a place of belonging. And so the question today with this one is, well, how do we do a holy kiss? Uh, Tom, come, 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 come here. I, I want to show you the Kiwi male version. <laughs> I knew I should have got somebody else. <laughs> That's quite all right. I'll. I'll rewrite my will. Um, <laughs> so the Kiwi version, right? The Kiwi male version of, of a greeting of a holy kiss is like this. Okay, mate. How are you? Good to see you. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I don't want to get too close. It's like, yeah, that's just awkward. And we just kind of bounce off each other like marbles, don't we? And in community, we do it in here. Yeah, how many, how many of you have ever had that great statement where you walk up to someone and go, hey, mate, how are you going? Fine. And you both say the same thing at the same time, then walk away. Yeah. You don't actually listen. It's not actually about listening. It's just, oh, yeah, that's just what you do. Here's how I think community works for Lao works here. It's like if I just come to you and I say, I oh, know, saw hands, and I just go, bro, sonny, brother, brother. And, and then we engage. And how are you? And what's going on in your life? And what can I be praying for? And how are you doing in community? And how can I serve you? How can I encourage you? How can I teach you? How can I submit to you to the place where I'm serving you so that you can become all that God is calling you to be? And in that moment, I probably did miss one. <laughs> Sit down. <laughs> and in that moment, it's not about the physical, it's about the fact that we have come together and we have joined soul intimately around Jesus. And it's a holy kiss. And imagine a community where there was that intimacy around Christ, where as we met with one another and as we shared life with one another, we brought each other closer to Christ. That's family. This is family. And the Lord Jesus Christ has called us to be the church and to be the family. And whatever your background of physical family is, there is an invitation for you to step into this family called the church with all of its warts and its failings and its, its challenges, which is why we need to forgive and why we need to encourage. But as you give yourself to that, there is this beauty which comes and by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Would you pray with me? Father, in this moment, I pray, Lord, that each one of us would sense the resonance of the Spirit crying, Abba, Father, as we surrender ourselves to your flesh. I pray, Father, for those who need to hear again that they're chosen. 
chosen before you created the world, Lord, would they in this moment, would their soul resonate with that truth? I pray for those of us who need to appropriate the wonder of being adopted, that we would know that there is, we have no debt, there is no sin debt, because the Father's adopted us, he's chosen us. And we have everything that we need for now and, and the promise for tomorrow. We have this new identity. We're a, a child of God. We are no longer a slave to the fear that we may have had. We are a child of God. And Father, I pray for every one of us that that longing we have in our soul to be home, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus and not look for it anywhere else. And for those of us who have been desperately trying to find that place in other things or in other ways, Lord, would you, would you tune us up that we would look to you and to you alone and our souls would resonate with the home we have, that eternal home, that relationship home. And as we, as we bask in the wonder of that, would we lay down our lives for each other and be the family and prefer one another and serve one another and bear with and forgive one another? Would we would we greet one another with the intimacy of, a, of the kiss of life as we share Jesus Christ? Father, this is, our, this is our simple prayer. This is our cry. Build your church, Lord. We ask this in your incredible name.